generation gets a bad rap, and I think unnecessarily to a certain extent. I, I think we've allowed a lot of that to happen. You're either you're either coaching it or you're letting it happen. We've we've let some of that stuff happen. Hey, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is Jonathan Gellner. Today's show features Texas Rangers minor league pitching coach, John O. Armold. Coach Armold and I go in depth discussing the player and coach relationship. John O. gives us five tools to use from his capstone research project that we can add to our coaching toolbox. Some of the topics are asking powerful questions, knowing our audience, and how to establish a coaching agreement. Without further ado, here is John O. Armold. Coach Armold, thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, I love that you reached out after your Texas baseball ranch discussion and, and said that you love the show and that you would love to share some content with us. And so for our listeners, can you give us a short snapshot of how you got into coaching and where you're at currently? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, playing career, uh, played Flagler College, little Division two school in St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, got drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers, played for them for a couple of years in their minor league system. I'd actually, I'd never planned on getting into coaching. I actually planned on going to law school. It was all set up to go to law school, wound up getting drafted. So that got put on the back burner a little bit. And once I got released and got done playing, rather than go in and, and go back to law school, I decided to give coaching a whirl and see how it goes. And started off coaching at the University of Texas at Dallas, which is a, a Division three school here in North Dallas. And from there, uh, got this job with the Texas Rangers as their rookie ball pitching coach. Uh, been out in the Arizona League for the last couple of years and just been going from here. Been doing lessons and some training programs. That's really been about it. And now I've, I've recently from U- the UT Dallas school, got my master's degree from there and learning from that. So you got your master's degree in organizational behavior. I'm not familiar with that. So can you tell us what that is? Sure. So it, it's mainly, I mean, it, it's kind of like it sounds, it's, you know, behavior in organizations, but the most important part and the most interesting part to me was it came with this emphasis and this certificate uh, course in professional and executive coaching which not unlike life coaching, job coaching, those sort of things that you've heard heard of before, some of your listeners might have heard of before. Getting into it, I initially didn't think that it would have any sort of application to sport coaching. I, I really went into the classes and was like, okay, this is, this is wonderful. You know, I'm learning about this, but this is totally different from sport coaching. This is totally different from baseball coaching. And what I really started to realize was, no, I couldn't have been more wrong. And realistically, a lot of the things that I learned from the course, probably some of the best stuff that I I could have done for my baseball coaching career. So it's a lot learning about, you know, how to communicate effectively, how organizations work, how, how good organizations work effectively, and what separates them from from bad organizations. But that, that professional executive coaching course really helped a lot with my communication as a coach and, and really how you can help the client in professional executive coaching, but the athlete in sport coaching to learn better and, and more effectively. So can you dig in with that for us a little bit and 
I'm looking at your slides right now, and you talked about the next frontier in sport development is one, understanding human behavior, two, improving learning outcomes, and three, communication. Can you talk with us a, a little bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I really think we've we've gotten to this point as coaches, as college organizations, professional organizations, uh, academies, you name it. I think we've really gotten to this point where we understand the physical aspects of the sport. We understand, okay, strength and conditioning, how it can help benefit on-field performance. We understand how we can better develop athletes. You're, you're seeing a lot of things, new wave stuff that's coming through, whether it be weighted ball type things. Uh, you name it. We've, we've done it in the sense of progressing our athletes on the field, athletically, physically, uh, and, and even mentally at the same time. And what I think, I put that like the next frontier in sport performance and development. I think for coaches, it's really understanding human behavior, understanding that not everybody's the same. So no two coaching scenarios are the same. No two people, no two athletes are the same. And you started to see a major shift to individualization in performance development. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that you've seen a massive shift to individualization in communication or in understanding how people react, act, or how they learn better. And that was one thing that really stood out to me through, through the, the things that I learned in professional executive coaching is you allow the in professional executive coaching, you allow the client to really lead the process. Mm -hmm. And I think the major, a major tenet of my sport coaching, of my baseball coaching, has been allowing the athlete to lead the process instead of me, you know, jumping down their throat, sitting there telling them everything to do. I, I've stolen a ton of tools from the professional executive coaching of asking more questions. And really just trying to understand how humans work better in order to more effectively communicate my message. Sure. I love that you said that, that it allows for self-discovery, self-awareness. And uh, you also mentioned that, it's, it, that when you're communicating, it's not exactly what you say, how you say it, but it's also when you say it. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. It, getting into the self-discovery and self-awareness thing, I, I came across a study that that was sort of eye-opening and, and proved the bigger point that, that a lot of these things matter. And it was, it was a study by, I think it was the School of Voice Report. I think it was from a year or two ago. And it talked about the students in school and when they felt that they had a voice in their classroom or in their school, you know, if they felt they could talk to the teacher or administrator or anything like that, if they had some say they were seven times more likely to be motivated to learn, eight times more likely to experience engagement, that they felt they, they were engaged, and they were nine times more likely to experience purpose. So that, that brought me back to the self-discovery and self-awareness part where, you know, I, I can sit there and I can, I can tell an athlete what to do. And, and we've all had those instructors where they just sit there and they, they beat you over the head with a concept or with a cue or with something mechanical that they really want you to get and doesn't really work. I can sit there and I can look at a blackboard studying strategy and it doesn't matter if I can't actually apply it on the field. And, and when I get in the moment, can I actually do it on my own? So I started 
taking that concept to coaching more and allowing that athlete to lead the process in that sense. But to what you were saying before, you know, it's not just what you say, it's when you say it, how you say it. We've all had those teachers or those communicators that, that are a little overbearing that, that also then coach at the wrong times. And so I started diving into that a little bit and I actually did for my master's degree, which I just finished, did a, a capstone project on that, which is like a thesis project to do some surveys and kind of analyze the data. And what I really wanted to do was analyze, okay, you know, does this actually have merit? I feel like this idea of better communication, this idea of asking questions more than you tell what to do, I think it has a lot of merit. It makes a lot of sense to me, but maybe that's just my my personality and and not that of the athletes. So did the study, had uh, athletes analyze their, their coaches and their coaching relationships to find out, okay, well, what's the most important? Do you actually like being asked questions? Also, when do you like being asked questions and versus when do you like being told information? And the, the response I got back was really interesting. So just getting into kind of the timing of, of feedback, what you start to realize is ask, ask athletes when not to tell. When, when do you not like being told information? Mm-hmm. The three most common answers were not during competition, not when it's obvious, and not after failing and knowing why you failed. Now, that's tricky as a coach because a lot of times we want to jump in there during competition and we also want to be there to help them when they fail and we're not so sure that they know why they failed. So you do kind of have to be discerning in some of that information. But then I asked the question of, okay, well, when do you not like being asked questions? And the three most common answers there were not in competition, which was was very interesting. So athletes don't like feedback in competition, which you know, stands to reason, okay, well, the when is really important because if I'm sitting there and if I'm communicating with you and and I'm communicating with you when you really don't want to be communicated with, when I come back and I try to communicate with you later the next day, it still sits in your mind about that time that I was talking to you and you didn't want to hear me and you zoned me out. So you start diluting your message when you choose inopportune times to communicate or you choose times that the athlete doesn't want to be talked to. We've all had that, that moment where we just want to go sit in the corner, chill out, reflect for a few minutes, and, and then maybe we can come back. And if you start force feeding your communication at those times, you have a chance of damaging the relationship and you have a chance of damaging your trust uh, with that athlete at the same time. But not trying to get too off topic, but then no, go ahead. another another answer that I got to, you know, when do you not like being asked questions was not after failure. So some similarities there between not during competition and also not after failure. But the other really interesting answer that was most common was, I can't think of a time when I don't like being asked a question. And that was the response. And, and one of the other responses was, you know, ask questions at any time. But there wasn't anybody that said, I can't think of a single time when I don't like being told information. There wasn't a single answer that way. But there were a lot of answers of, I can't think of a time when I don't like being asked a question. So that that lends some credence to what you'd mentioned that I'd mentioned of, you know, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it, when you say it. We we always want to be positive 
We always want to make an impact with whatever it is that we're communicating. We want to make sure that that's not just getting left to the wayside. Definitely. And to stay on the topic of when and when the wrong times are, a couple of years ago, whenever I was first getting into coaching, there was an article that came out, and I, and I can't remember who, who wrote it, but they were just talking about why we should not have long meetings after games, especially games that we lose. And they just mentioned that basically, you know, the kids are all upset because they lost or sure. they're really excited because they won. And they've already been in competition for two hours, two plus hours. And so how much of a good conversation are you actually getting and how much are they actually going to be listening to you? So does that kind of go right about with, with what you're saying? Definitely. And, and I think that's one of the major keys that I've found, you know, whether through research and reading books or, or talking to great coaches is great coaches have great discernment meaning that they know when when to push, when to pull, when to back off, when to when to jump down somebody's throat and when to let it simmer. And with what you're saying, I think there's there's a a few different methodologies when it comes to that. There's there's the concept of you want to have a review almost as soon as possible mm-hmm. right after the moment. Right. Like what you're saying a post-game meeting, then there's the idea okay, we'll wait till the next day and review the game where you can sit back from maybe a position of more logic and rationality and really digest what happened. And I think the best answer and the best answer to any coaching question, anything is it depends. It depends on the, where's the team at in, in the season where, how was the game? And you're not going to do it the same. You could lose two games and you might do it, do it differently, but you've got to have a certain element of feel as a coach and you've got to be able to tell, to tell when and where. I don't, I don't think that's cut and dry necessarily. No, I, I'm with you completely. And so after reading that article, I, you know, I, I just tried to remember myself as a player and how I would have reacted if a coach had done this or that. And so we started doing like a, just a five minute meeting before practice the next day. And I just felt like the, just the conversations were so much better because again, it, it was still fresh because it was the night before, but they had also had a chance to digest it themselves. And we, we both, both sides could take out a little bit of the emotion about it. Sure. I, I think we live in a time now, you know, sitting here and, and we're having this conversation and you and I are both probably checking our phone. And where the the ADD culture, so to speak, mm-hmm. has has taken o- over. It's Twitter. It's it's all these things, and that's not bad. It's just different. But to your credit, what you're saying, like a five minute conversation, bam, your players can probably stay locked in, can can stay focused. You can probably stay locked in and stay focused. But the more that it goes beyond that, and it starts getting into a 45 minute conversation, and 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 you're just going over the same topic and the same topic. You, you lose some of that relationship. You lose some of that, just that attentiveness where you want your players to be locked into what you're saying. How, how much can you speed that up? Sure. And staying on the same, same subject of, of time and, and when to do this and, and when to communicate what, how has this changed in your coaching career? Through, through the masters, I'm assuming you mean? Yeah. Well, just take yourself before you did this program and then talk about how it's changed from when you started to how you are now. Man, I, I just don't think I was aware, as aware of it. You know, one, one major thing that's changed, I, 
I'd never planned on coaching, never wanted to coach. Shoot, I, I had no interest. I thought I was always of that mindset that coaches were the guys that couldn't do, so they they teach and they coach. And I, I had a great coach in college that really changed that that mindset for me that made me start to realize, oh, wow, like I, I have a, a really good relationship with this guy and and it's taken my ability on field to another level. I, I think just being more aware of it. Um, through this master's program, you you realize, okay, you want the client to lead the process. You're going to, it's more about, it's more about getting them to where they need to be as opposed to me trying to show how much I know. Because I can sit here and I can talk mechanics and I can talk, you know, game strategy all I want. But if the athlete isn't actually taking that, owning it, making it theirs, then it's just my words. That's not as powerful. That That's not that self-discovery, self-awareness. They're not engaged. It's that coaching is, is more coaxing than it is teaching, than it is telling. It's... It's an incredibly dynamic social activity. And that, that's why I mentioned so much about uh, understanding human behavior and understanding communication because it, it varies from situation to situation. Just like we've changed our, our ideal vision of mechanics, how it's, they've gotten far less cookie cutter over the years. I think our coaching is, is needing to become that more and more. And that's, that's really the major change for me. No, and I love it. And, uh, you know, just to piggyback off of that, I, I think your best coaches are your best teachers. I know I'm a, I'm a U.S. history teacher and, and a coach as well. And in my interview at my current school, you know, they, they talked about, is there a difference between the two? And I don't, I don't think there is. I think that they're, that just the subject is different. I think you're still having to, to teach. I think you obviously have, have more kids on the baseball team than you do in, in each classroom, or at least I hope you do. And I, I just think the subject changes. I think that's our, in the root of coaching, you're still trying to relay information to where it makes sense to kids. And if they don't understand it, like you were saying earlier, then they can't apply it at all. Sure. And I, I think it's, it's really interesting. Sport coaching is, is so different in that sense, in that, so professional and executive coaching, one of the very first things that they teach you is this isn't teaching. This isn't psychology. This isn't mentoring. It's different than all of those. And, and professional executive coaches really have a, a funny way of, of putting that. They, they, they don't want to be lumped into those categories. And I think even more so sport coaches, you know, to what you're saying, absolutely, you have to teach. And, and there's a lot of information that I, I can't ask an athlete a question when he doesn't have any idea of the answer. Like if he doesn't have the information to, to actually answer my question, then me just asking a question is pounding sand. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it, that sport coaching, baseball coaching, the things that we do as coaches, it's all of those. It's teaching, it's, sure. it's mentoring, it's coaching, it's psychology at times. And being able to know when to use what tools, I think is really, really important. So how do we how do we find that out? Is it just trial and error, or is it just finding more research? Or I th- I think for me uh, to answer my own question, it's about building relationships. Does does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I would agree for sure. And I think that's where a lot of the trial and error occurs. 
you start to realize what works for some people, what, what doesn't work for certain people. And you're always going to be able to, to group certain people. Okay, this, this guy's more outgoing. I can reach him a little bit more this way. This, this guy's a little bit more of an introvert. I can reach him more this way. But through building those relationships, man, you can have a, a much bigger impact in athletes. So talking about voice matters, you said that, that students who believe they have a voice are seven times more likely to be motivated to learn, eight times more likely to be experience engagement in school, and nine times more likely to experience purpose in school. Now that is in a classroom setting. Can you tell us what that looks like on the field? I'll give a really good example of that. So this past year, coaching in the Arizona League, pitching coach, you know, you, you do your bullpens before games. I had top to bottom, just totally different athletes from all the way across the roster and had a couple kids, highly motivated, really competitive. But I would ask them, I would allow them to make their bullpens. Now I provide some structure to it where, you know, I might make a script for them. I'd also make the script random where they're not just throwing 10 fastballs in a row, but making it more of a competition. I'd ask them, hey, how do you feel today? Oh, you know, I feel good or oh, I feel a little bit tender. And then I would structure, or, well, then I would ask them, okay, you know, how hard do you want to push today in your bullpen? Do you want to get after it? Do you want to compete? I can have the two of you guys compete against each other, uh, make it a little bit more competitive and giving them the opportunity where, where you can as a coach to set their own environment up. Now, I would try to try different things to make it harder, set up two dummies in there where they got to throw it through a really narrow lane or I'd be running around with a blow horn. And more than anything, just setting up the environment more so than specifically dictating, oh, you need to do this, 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 this. Oh, you're breaking ball. You're not getting out in front enough. Get it out. Just that, that telling aspect. So allowing them to have a little bit of say in what they're doing. Now, that comes with trust, both in the coach and in the athlete, that just like we need to earn their trust, they need to earn our trust. But that was really where I found the most learning. And talk about engagement, that engagement factor is huge. When we're throwing a bullpen and I'm calling out the pitches and just telling you, okay, you're going to do this and, and do this. And again, getting back to that specifically telling you what to do. It's just kind of going, it, going through the motions, but when you can own it and you can make it yours, it becomes really powerful. And think about how powerful that is to an athlete. You know, and I recently met with, I'm, again, I'm a pitching coach at a high school in Frisco, Texas. And I recently met with all of my pitcher onlys because we're always trying to figure out, you know, how in high school, you know, we have only a handful and most of the pitching coaches have other duties to fulfill as well. And so we met and, and with the help of, of a couple of different people, Travis Hergert at NIAC and, and Eric Peterson and his U program, we came up with an individual plan for each one of them, but they made it. And so, mm -hmm. for, and so my first thought is, well, how do I hold them accountable? So we're meeting every Tuesday to come up with a plan. And they have just a list of things that they're going to do and a time frame. And so they're, they're having a huge say in, in what they're, they're working on. And I even, and this is way out of my comfort zone because I'm usually very structured as far as that goes. But I even left a, a fill in the blank section of drills that they really like to do, but they had to give me a reason why. 
But anyways, so it, it gave them uh, a lot of ownership in it. And, and I'm really excited to see, to see how it's going to go because we're going to check in every Tuesday and to see how much they did. And uh, again, like you said, it, it gives them a lot of ownership and it tell, and it's, it's showing them that I trust in them to do what they're trying to do. Now it, it may crash and burn with, you know, 14 to 18 year olds. I'm hoping not, but it, it's kind of eliminating the excuses of, of, well, I, I don't really like this drill. Well, you came up with it. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm really excited to see where this one goes. That, that is awesome. And there are so many elements of that, that, that you're doing. This is really what I realized through this master's program and through professional executive coaching is some of the best coaches that I know use these tools and don't even know that they're using them or don't even know that they're using professional executive coaching tools. What you're talking about with, with holding them accountable, you're giving them the freedom to, to go be on your own, do your thing. But if you need help, I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. And I'm also going to hold you accountable. And, and how can I help you right. as opposed to here's what you're going to do? Well, and, and again, it's putting the onus in their hands. They do have an accountability partner. So I partnered a senior awesome. with a younger guy. And so if they don't remember how to do a drill, then most of the time they're all together anyways. But their partner has to sign off on, on what they did for the day just because, you know, we're trying to prepare them for real life. And to be completely honest, I, I, I don't want somebody telling me what I had to do for the entire day. If I really believe that I have, if I have a good plan in place, then I want to try and see if that works. And so, you know, we'll see. It's, it's, there's a lot of uh, factors that go into that, but I'm really excited to see how it goes. So I appreciate the, appreciate the, the positivity from your end. No doubt. And, and I think what you, a lot of coaches are, might be scared to do some of that. And I think that comes from, a place of wanting control mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Hey, I'm as OCD as, as they come and as control freakish as they come in, in a lot of respects. But again, it's not about me or it's not about us as the coaches. It's about them taking it, making it theirs. It's, it's about them. It's not about us. Sure. Well, and I've told them my job is to eliminate my job, like from the first day. That, 100%. that if they, you know, they're never, they're going to have me for a handful of years, but they're, you know, however long their playing career is, if they can come up with their plan and if they can own what they're doing, then they know that they're their own best pitching coach, if that makes sense. Definitely. I think that's, that is, that is true power. And that's, that also speaks highly probably to your relationship with your players of that you feel like you can give that to them and that then they can take it and run with it. And, and I'm sure they think highly of you because of that too. <laughs> well, I hope so. I guess, I guess we'll find out. Uh, uh, <laughs> but talk to us about, you, you've got several coaching tools listed and I would love for us to dig in deep with some of these. Your coaching tool number one is establishing a coaching agreement. Uh, what, what is that? So uh, in professional and executive coaching, the, the very first thing that you do is you have to create this coaching agreement, which is essentially if you come to me as a client, you're looking for help and, and you want help in something, some aspect of your life, whether it's your job or personal life, anything. You typically have a reason for coming to me. You're stressed out. Now, a lot of times that reason that, that you're coming to me, or at least that you think you're coming to me, isn't the actual reason. There's, there's layers and you have to peel back some of the layers in that, such as you're stressed, but it's actually three layers deeper and there's something specifically that's really bothering you that's leading to that stress. So that coaching agreement becomes narrowing down 
that issue, that finding that root issue, and then also creating a little bit of an action plan, not, not necessarily an action plan, but a plan for the conversation. So uh, professional executive coaching is all these, it's just a coaching conversation. And as the coach, your sole job is to ask questions and to help guide the client to wherever they want to get. And it's a partnership in that. And that's, that's really how I view my sport coaching. But to the bigger extent, that coaching agreement also includes meeting these, these uh, moral and ethical standards, meaning in a lot of situations where a professional or executive coach is coming into, say, a business to help, they're typically brought on by management. So if management brings me in as a professional executive coach and I go to talk to you, you're probably already going to be a little bit skeptical. Because you're thinking, oh, you're going to go run to my manager. And when I badmouth something or talk about how stressed out I am, you're just going to go run and tell them. And the only way for true growth in that relationship, in that conversation is open and honest communication. And for that to happen, you have to create that preliminary trust of, look, I'm not going to take this anywhere and, and go to your bosses about it. This is just you and me. It's almost almost uh, attorney client privilege sort of thing where, you know, what we're going to talk about here, like, I'm not here for me. I'm not here for your manager either. I'm here for you to help you out. And really, I think coaching tool number one is how many times do we go into a lesson? uh, Let's say we're doing a pitching lesson and we know what athlete X needs to work on. You know, we got to get him more extension. We got to get him the ball more out front for him. But if he doesn't know that, and if I simply just feed him that information, it's not his. And it's also not his decision that he made the decision that we're going to work on that. It's now I'm dictating instead of allowing him to find his own way. So a lot of times that coaching agreement and, and how you can relay it to, to, let's say we're going to throw a bullpen. Hey, what do you really feel like you need to work on today? Is the easiest way to establish that coaching agreement in a sports setting of allowing the athlete to figure out and decide what, what they'd like to do, what they think they need to work on. And then you can help shape that. Cause a lot of times they'll say, you know, what do you think I need to work on? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that comes from a good place. Sometimes that comes from a coach pleasing place. And I think that's one of the relationship killers that you really want to avoid because that's not open and honest. That's just you asking. You're, now you're only asking me that question because you want to please me and you think that I want to tell you. And when you start getting into that, you start kind of corrupting that relationship a little bit. So let me ask you this. I, I don't usually ask the athlete what they want to do on a given day. Some, I mean, I, I, we, we sometimes meet beforehand to discuss what, what we're planning on doing, but I always ask them, do they understand why? So say, like you're saying, player X needs to uh, get the ball out in front more. And then I tell them, and then I say, so does that make sense as to why we're trying to do that? And sometimes I get some good dialogue and sometimes I don't, but I feel like there are some things that we want to get across to them but if they don't understand the why, then it, it, they don't understand the importance of it. I agree. And, and that, that comes with 
exactly what we're talking about, allowing them to make it theirs. If, okay. if they're just doing it to do it, then they're not really making it theirs. Or if they're just doing it because you told them to do it, mm-hmm. then they're not making it theirs. There, there's going to absolutely come times where you're going to have athletes that don't have enough self-awareness to know that they need to work on that. And you can help them. And I think in a lot of ways, you can you can shape the environment or you can have a drill that you know they're going to fail at and have them do it. And see if you can get them to start to realize, oh, this is why I'm failing. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm releasing the ball from behind my head instead of actually being able to get it out and get it through my target. And what, what just happened there, if I can do that, in, I could have very easily just told you, you need to get the ball out front. But instead, when I forced you, created the environment to make you feel it, okay, now you felt it. Now you also, you know, I think a lot of times we don't give athletes enough credit mm-hmm. where they're a lot smarter than we, than we think they are sometimes. And they see things, they hear things, they feel things. And when you can force that through the environment as opposed to forcing that through your communication, I think it becomes all the more powerful. And, and here's the other thing that this is probably step number two, because step number one that you learn is about the coaching agreement. Step number two in professional executive coaching is uh, asking questions and specifically what types of questions. So one thing that, that you said in there is you asked the athlete, you know, do you understand why we're doing this or why are we doing this? And one thing that they hit on in questions that, that has made me really revamp the way that I communicate and the way that I ask questions is they talk about you can ask any type of question that doesn't begin with a why. Now, the reason behind that is about the relationship and that the type of relationship that you want to be in is not unlike the relationship that we have right now in this conversation. It's adult to adult where I'm learning from you. You're learning from me. We're talking and enjoying each other's time. And I, you're not looking down on me. I'm not looking down on you. So you have three different types of relationship. You have child to child relationship, which is if we were on here, just kind of griping at each other or complaining about something that would be the child to child relationship you have the child to parent relationship which is i'm the coach do what i want you've been bad etc etc and then you have that adult to adult relationship so what you start to realize is and i'll ask you this question who were the first people to ever ask you why did you do that my parents absolutely and that's what everybody's response is well why did you do that why are you doing that why wouldn't you do this and when you start to ask questions in that way where you start, you can, you can even hear it in my tone where it starts to become a little bit more demeaning or interrogative, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. where instead of starting, like I could, I could ask the very same question and say, what do you think the purpose of that is? And you can kind of hear in my tone and how that gets perceived by you as the athlete or as the coach where it just takes on a different meaning. So that, that doesn't mean that we're not trying to find the why or we don't want the athlete to understand the why. It's just a different way of doing it. We, we, we go to the how and we go to the what, the when and the where in order to find the why, if, if that makes sense. Definitely. And I think where most coaches, why most coaches don't do that is because they don't want to have a friendship if that makes sense with, with the players or where, where they're, they're not in charge. So how do we know when, you know, a player coach relationship has become too much of a friendship? And what's your advice regarding that? That's a, 
Outstanding question because, shoot, I've, I've found myself in that predicament where I love the relationships with coaches. I remember when I was coaching at UTD, I, I, or excuse me, my relationship with players. When I just started coaching at UTD, uh, I literally just got done playing. I'm mm-hmm. two, three years older than some of these kids. And it's in our nature to, to try to create friendships. And where you realize that started going wrong isn't when they want to hang out with you isn't when they, they want to stand by you when you're hitting fungos and they want to talk to you. That's actually a sign of a really great relationship that they actually want to talk to you. But where it becomes an issue is when you can't hold them accountable and you can't, if you do need to discipline them in some sense, that's a major part of our job. If, if they're not holding themselves accountable, it is ultimately our job to hold them accountable that's really when it takes a step too far. If I can't discipline or hold somebody accountable anymore and it's become that much of a friendship that you're not even buying into what I'm saying through the relationship that we've created, now now we've started to create an issue. Love it. And that was coaching tool number two. Coaching tool number three is active or deep listening. And I love this quote that you used. You said most people don't listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. Uh, Stephen R. Covey. And I completely guilty, completely guilty about that. And one of my things that I've been trying to do a whole lot better job of this year is actually listening and not trying to reply, which uh, is obviously what Covey just said. But uh, that fits my mold completely. And I love that. So talk to us about active or deep listening and, and how we can do that with our players. Yeah, this, this is the tool that requires absolutely the most work mm-hmm. and absolutely the most practice where active and deep listening a status or a place where you're not listening with any sort of attachment. You're not listening and judging, but you're, you're listening to understand exactly like that, like that quote was saying. But when you listen to what your athlete is saying and you actually absorb it, instead of thinking about the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth or thinking about the next thing that you're going to tell him to do, you can start to take that language that the athlete uses and use it in your communication. And think about when an athlete hears that. So, okay, you know, I might have a terminology for something such as, uh, you know, instead of extension, I like talking about late launch, like you're launching the ball late. And, and I had perfect example of this, had a lesson a couple weeks ago that I said, oh, did you feel that? Like, did you, you know, are you feeling that sort of late launch? And he goes, yeah, you know, I'm really feeling it. And then goes on to explain something with his legs. So he thinks that the late launch is more with his lower half. So I've heard that. And now I need to digest that. And I also need to understand, okay, maybe I haven't explained, you know, my version of late launch, but guess what? My version of late launch also doesn't mean squat because it doesn't matter. What's, what's the difference? So then I, I follow up and ask the question, like, how do you, I, I want to hear more about that. How do you define, or how would you describe that late launch? Like what, what, what does that mean to you? So then in future communication, I don't need to, to use late launch in the sense of extension. I can find a different term for that. I can find different vocabulary for that. But now I can use that late launch idea in order to get him to where he needs to be with his lower half, with what he was just talking about. So, so that goes into some of the cookie cutter type, type things. But when, when you're a, a coach who's a skillful listener is able to ask, powerful questions, which is that, that coaching tool number two, that you're also not just asking questions to ask questions, but you're trying to ask 
powerful questions. We've, we've all had, had coaches or teachers or anybody that asked us a question and then we sat there and went, ah, like you have that, that aha moment that happens. And it's a really powerful moment. And that's really what you're trying to do throughout professional executive coaching is find the way to ask those powerful questions. When you can do that, that learning and, and, and the, the, the engagement becomes so huge and so great. And that was coaching tool number four. I, we, I know we mentioned one through four, so I wanted to make sure that our listeners didn't think <laughs> we were skipping out on one. But I'll tell you what, one, one phrase that really changed my coaching career, my relationship with my players was asking them, so how would you describe that? Or what would you say that's called? Or what, Definitely. how would you feel this? So in a way, I'm not using my terminology. Like you said, you're using the athlete's language and it's different for each player, but how the player feels versus what you're telling them to feel is completely different. So now instead of saying, so not only what did you feel there or it's how would I ask you to feel that or what, how would you describe that? So in their words, now you can tell them that and it just like, you know, like the snap of fingers, it, it, they remember it rather than saying extension or, or so he said getting into his legs more. It really is a game changer for, for those who are looking for something to, to really relate that with the players better. Definitely. Think, think about how powerful that is. Not only when you pull that back out in that same lesson, bullpen session, practice, mm-hmm. whatever, but then two weeks down the road, you pull that word back out. Not only does he know it because he's said it, he came up with the terminology, but then he also looks at you and he's like, oh, wow, like you were paying attention. You, sure. you actually listened to me. You talk about helping your relationship with a player. Holy cow. When that happens, that trust really starts to get ingrained at that point. Right. And I love group training for lessons because sometimes I'll say something. And then the player will look at me weird and one of the other players goes, hey, just do this. And they're like, oh, well, why didn't you just say that? I'm like, well, no kidding. I I wish I had. But if that makes sense, so that so it allows them to get feedback from each other as well. So I love that part of it. Definitely. So let's hop into the advice section. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this for the players listening. What what have you seen? You've, You've been in the college level. You've obviously played high school and college. And now you're at the pro level. So what do you see the difference between what what sets pro guys apart from everybody else talent sure <laughs> uh, that would of course be the the simple answer but i i'd really say like a dis, a discernible skill something that that separates you what you're really starting to see in in pro ball is tools a a specific tool or skill set that separates you from the herd you know, it, we talk all the time, work on your weaknesses. And absolutely, you should work on your weaknesses to the point that they're not a weakness, but you also better have a strength. And I think one of the most telling things was you watch the World Series this year and you look at all the guys that, that the Astros were throwing out there, that the Dodgers were throwing out there. You got Jansen's cutter, that Jansen could literally throw that cutter 150 times and He's going to get outs with it. Mm-hmm. You look at McCullers' curveball. McCullers sat there and threw 55 curveballs in a row. And you're starting to see that more and more through the pro game that, you know, starters, of course, have well-rounded skill sets. But most starters also have one thing that, that really does separate them, whether it's velocity, command, whatever. So, so my, 
my point there is skill set and also my advice to athletes is work on your strengths. Mm-hmm. You know, make your strengths so strong that your weaknesses almost disappear. I love that. And and most, well, and, and you've been around big league guys and your minor league guys. What sets them apart? Because they all have talent. They all throw 95 plus. They've all got at least one hit tool, whether it's average or power. But what sets the big leaguers apart, like the 10-year veterans from the guys who don't get out of minor league ball? Well, I don't have a ton of experience uh, with big league guys in that sense, but I can tell you one thing. A, they're all really big, hairy, bearded men, <laughs> and they walk around with a ton of confidence. That was, that, that was a big thing that stood out to me, and that's a major philosophy of mine as, as a coach is everything that I'm doing needs to be instilling confidence in athletes because I see how the high-level performers act and it's confident. There's they, there's no big leaguers walking around uh, the spring training facility hanging their head or or their chest tucked underneath them. They're they're walking around tall like they own the place and and they should. That's how every high level athlete that I've ever seen walks around. They're they're confident and I think that's a major thing. They've been there and they've done it and they know that they can do it. They believe that they can do it and you see a lot of times in minor leaguers there's there's that shred of doubt. There's that tiny place of doubt that can feed itself when you start losing or start performing poorly, but it just it gets exposed a lot and it stands out. That tiny little sliver of doubt still stands out. Uh, after having our conversation, it, it sounds like you are a lifelong learner and you're constantly trying to improve yourself. So what's something that uh, you've learned lately that you're really excited about? To be honest, it's going to sound self-serving, but that uh, people are interested in this kind of stuff. I'd, I'd gotten done with this master's course, and I was preparing my presentation. I mean, I was preparing my presentation at the ranch for a year. And, you know, I think there's a lot of validity to it, of course, but that doesn't mean that the, the room full of 100 coaches, high school, college, professional coaches, front office people, that they're going to find it interesting. And... So I still went in and I was confident. I was like, well, I know I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to dominate it. I'm going to do fine. But I just hope that the subject is going to be interesting to people. Mm -hmm. And the feedback I got was overwhelming. It was, it was supremely positive of, you know, this is kind of a, a, a niche spot. Not a lot of people have even heard of professional and executive coaching, let alone incorporating professional and executive coaching with sport coaching. Because we know, like like anybody else knows, sport coaching is it's a dogmatic, traditional type field where you know go for your thirty minute lesson and have the pitching coach sit there and tell you to get to your balance point and that's it. And I I think, granted, just like your podcast listeners, you know, at, at the convention at the coaches boot camp, there's a lot of progressive forward thinkers, but just the fact that people are interested in it has also led me to want to get it out there more and, and talk more about it. I love it. Well, let me flip the question on you and ask you what's something that you once thought was true or once thought was an absolute and you may have changed your mind about. I, I hit on it a little bit earlier about coaching and you know, coaches are the coaches that coaches are the players they couldn't do, so they coach. And I I think I started to realize it towards the end of my playing days. 
and definitely once I started coaching. But it, overall impact of not, not really coaching, but the environment that a coach can create, you know, leadership and culture and all those things, everything that comes with it. But also as a coach, you know, I, I don't think it's so much my job to sit there and tell, just like I've said throughout this podcast, but more so I think it's my job to create an environment that allows for better learning, that allows for better engagement, that allows, can I, can I make a, a monotonous bullpen in the middle of August when there's two weeks left in the season and we're out of the playoffs, can I make it interesting? Mm-hmm. Can I make it something that they can learn from it? And I think that's one thing that's really that's changed my mind is how how much as a coach it's not not your job to dictate it's more your job to set up the environment. Definitely, which leads us to coaching tool number five, which is know your audience. You see this a lot, especially on social media, and it drives me nuts. It's this generation stuff, right? Right. And I think this generation stuff has been going on for uh, hundreds of generations, but. We see this a lot. So talk to us about knowing your audience and, you know, tell us what that means. Knowing your audience, for the most part, is, is just like if I came on here and I was talking to your, to your podcast listeners about nuclear physics. You know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of point in that. I'm, re- I'm not reaching the correct audience. And how can you divert that over to your sport coaching? And when I'm coaching player X, we hit on this a little bit earlier. Okay. I'm coaching player X. Player X is well organized, well thought out, knows what he wants to do. So I can grant him a little bit more freedom mm-hmm. in whatever we're doing, say his bullpen. Cause I know it's, it's going to get done. It's going to get done well. And I don't need to be overbearing with it. Player Y, not as organized, needs a little bit more structure. So how can I still provide the structure, but allow him the freedom to be himself? And. You know, those bullpen examples were really good examples. And, and I think it's also a difference between coaching, you alluded to it earlier, coaching in an individual setting versus coaching in a group setting. You, you need to be able to adjust and adapt your coaching strategies and how you coach based on the environment and based on the athlete and based on the setting. One other piece of feedback that I got from this master's study was that athletes in an individual setting might prefer being asked questions, but in a lot of senses in group settings, it's going to be, it's going to have to be pretty particular set of circumstances that they want to be asked questions for the reason that they don't want to look stupid in front of other people. So you also have to be aware of how you're providing the feedback, but also, you know, they, they don't want to get embarrassed in front of their friends. So if you sit there and you just harp on a kid, in front of his whole team, you can do that as a way to send a message to the rest of the team. Let, let's say we talked about the accountability example earlier. Let's say that player X really isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. Player X is also highly motivated. Player X has a lot of confidence. So I don't, I'm not really that worried about taking away his confidence. Uh, I think he's self-confident. We've also got a really good relationship. So he's, probably in that sense, going to be somewhat of a leader. So he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. I, I can tell there's a couple athletes that are also going to see that. That might be a good situation and a good person to blow up, meaning, okay, I'm going to do this, but it's not with the intention of embarrassing him. It's actually with the real intention of showing the others around that 
okay, I'm holding player X accountable. I'm definitely going to hold the rest of you accountable at the same time. And understanding that and the difference between that, I don't want to do that to a guy that's low on confidence and walks around with his head hung all day or can get easily embarrassed in front of people. That, that would just be embarrassing and I'd be demeaning him. So, so finding the situation that can be different there. And, and I, I really like what you said about coaching this generation. I, I think that it's taken this weird turn. I see it on Twitter all the time. I saw something the other day. Oh, kids these days, they'll have no idea of, of how to uh, go to the field and pick teams and play a sandlot game. And it's like, that's really, that's where we're going now. That's, that's yeah. the new thing. That's the new uh, drink from the water hose idea. You know, drinking from the water hose ain't that healthy. I got I to gotta tell you, if I'd have had a bottle of water, I'd have preferred to drink a bottle of water. Now, I, I understand the concept behind it, but yeah, it's a different generation. It doesn't mean that it's any worse. It also means that when you make comments like that, athlete hears that and it's like, oh, this old fogey doesn't can't even relate to me let me hop on snapchat i think you got to be careful with it with when you make comments like that especially when you're coaching this generation this generation gets a bad rap and i think unnecessarily to a certain extent i I think we've allowed a lot of that to happen you're either you're either coaching it or you're letting it happen we've we've let some of that stuff happen you know an interesting part about that and the this generation stuff is i was listening to brian kite the other day who if our listeners don't listen to him, then he's very, very good. And he was reading a book from, I think it was 200 AD. And there were some Roman generals that were talking about how the younger generation all wanted to be in archery because the they were working too hard and and the rewards were not enough. And so I was like, wow, that is completely relatable to you know what we're talking about today it's 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 not a this generation problem it's a young people have always been like this problem and it's just they have to mature and they have to grow up and we have to help them with that so like you said yeah. we're either we're either allowing it to happen or we're doing something about it so i mean instead of just talking about it let's let's do something about it yeah i i think so much of it i i saw i watched midnight in paris that old i think it's luke wilson or is it owen wilson i don't know one of those two wilson brothers um but it was interesting you know i I don't need to go into the length of a synopsis of the movie but it it's that idea of oh the older generation is always better and and or my generation is always better and it's just different you know there's a lot of stuff with technology that's awesome today Mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of stuff that that gets in the way and creates issues and as coaches, it's also up to us to, to sift through that. Sure. Well, I teach U.S. history, so every generation <laughs> every generation that we go through, the kids are like, oh, wow, this generation was terrible. Oh, wow. This, you know, so it's, it's, it's a historical problem, but again, we're either griping about it or we're doing something about it. Yep. So for those listeners who want to dig more into this topic, what are some of your favorite resources that have shaped your coaching career? best book that I read this past year that it incorporates a lot of these things without knowing it is Conscious Coaching uh, mm-hmm. by Brett Bartholomew. He's good. A, 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 it's a really good book, hits a lot on the personality types and how to more effectively create trust. And he alludes in the book talking about 
trust. We, we, we tell our athletes all the time, you got to buy in, you better buy in, you better buy into what we're doing. And that buy-in doesn't really happen without trust, which major theme through, you know, just this podcast in general. And my message overall is how important that trust is. And he, he outlines ways in the book to, to help with that. And another really good book for, for coaches, that's more for coaches. And then team of teams, uh, by general Stanley McChrystal, really good book for, you know, creating better organizational behavior. It's a great organizational behavior book that I think is great for coaches or, or leaders in any sense. And for players, the best, best playing book I ever read was what to say when you talk to yourself and being aware of self-talk. And even though we might say things and we're half joking, a lot of those things come to fruition. So you do have to watch what you say when you talk to yourself a lot. Definitely. So, Jono, thanks again for being with us today. Where can we find you online in case uh, anyone wants to get in touch with you? No, no no problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm on the Twitter. Uh, it's at 24Jono, J-O-N-O. And if any of your listeners want to email me, want more information, coaches need any help, players need any help, anything they can email me. It's my first initial, last name, Armold at texasrangers.com by all means reach out if anybody needs any help with anything thank you for listening to ahead of the curve i hope you enjoyed the show and got something from our outstanding guest if you're wanting to listen to past shows and get alerts for new ones ahead of the curve is now available on the texas high school baseball coaches association app as well as itunes stitcher and google play please consider writing a review or rating the show so other coaches can find and stay ahead of the curve.